You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As Americans return to the workplace as they left months ago, employers are wrestling with the legal risks ahead. Some workers are bound to get sick, and many will end up in court demanding safer working conditions or compensation for lost wages and medical bills. Joining me is Samuel S. Stryker, a professor at NYU Law School and the director of the Center for Labor and Employment. Some employees have already filed lawsuits against McDonald's and Amazon for not doing enough to keep workers free of coronavirus. Even though those companies have promised to follow health guidelines such as maintaining social distance, improving sanitation, and providing personal protective gear. So how do companies know what the standard is, what they should be working toward? Well, there's no absolute guarantee here. But if they follow the guidance uh, of the uh, various agencies, which would be uh, the Department of Labor, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the state and local government guidances, should be a pretty low risk of, of litigation. On the other hand, it's not foolproof because uh, they may follow all that guidance and someone comes in and contracts uh, the virus and has complications with his underlying condition. So it's not foolproof. This is one reason why the business community is seeking legislation that provides for a liability shield. Well, there's no absolute guarantee here, but if they follow the guidance of the uh, various agencies and which would be uh, the Department of Labor, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the state and local government guidances, should be a pretty low risk of litigation. On the other hand, it's not foolproof because uh, they may follow all that guidance and someone comes in and contracts the virus and has complications with his underlying condition. So it's not foolproof. This is one reason why the business community is seeking legislation that provides for a liability shield. Will most employees end up filing workers' comp claims if they come down with something? I think so. Most employees will. And I've actually looked at the uh, the New York state law, which I'm more familiar with than other states. I think they've got a good argument that, that the contracting of the, of the virus is covered by workers' compensation. And what that means is there will be a no-fault proceeding before an administrative agency, and there will be some possibility of getting compensation for lost pay and for a medical treatment. It's not 100% clear, but it, I think that's where the law is going to go. I note that, for example, uh, California's governor has issued an executive order to make clear that employees who contract the virus are covered by workers' comp. I'd be very surprised if New York doesn't follow suit. Would they have to prove that they got the virus at work? They would have to prove that it's workplace-related. But it shouldn't be that hard because most employers are going to require There'll be a temperature check before the employee comes back to work and will also require some evidence that the person can return to work. In other words, the person is not actively under the, under the illness. So if that's the case, we have information at time one when the employee enters the workplace. And if something happens afterwards, all of a sudden the employee has contracted uh, the virus, then we have some proof of causation. In other words, at time one, when they entered into the workplace, they don't have the temperature, they don't have a high temperature, and... They've been cleared by a doctor, and now at some later point after working there, now they have the virus. I think they can prove causation. The problem is how much compensation can you get for just contracting the virus? Because what, what constitutes an injury here? That's the problem. You should be able to get some medical treatment if you're not covered, but uh, it would be hard to prove that you have an injury. Of course, if, uh, if God forbid, you get an injury, then the injury will be easily proven. The, the great virtue of the workers' compensation system is that it's no fault. The only thing you have to do is prove that it was workplace-related and that it's a covered illness. 
covered accident or illness, and you don't have to prove that the employer was negligent. That's the great virtue of it. The emphasis is on compensation. The negative side of workers' compensation is if you have serious injuries from contracting the virus, then workers' compensation is not as good a, a avenue for you as would a tort suit be. And that's because um, the workers' compensation system doesn't do as good a job in, in, in putting a damages value on serious diseases, serious illnesses, as would a tort suit. This is very different from what the assumption was back at the turn of the 20th century when the various states enacted these laws, where the assumption was that when with the employee has to go to the court, they will lose. I think the assumption now is different. So would you suggest that employers not fight these claims, just give up and pay? Absolutely. Yeah, they lose something if a claim is, is, uh, is made because it'll increase their insurance payment, call it experience rating. In other words, the employers have to pay more the more claims that are made, but it's still a kind of homogenization with all the other claims, and it'll be less than they think. So I would say if a person comes in and contracted uh, the virus and filed for workers' compensation, I think it's in the employer's interest to not contest it because they will then have the liability shield that the business community is seeking. They will have it under workers' comp because workers' comp provides that you can't pursue any other action against the employer other than what's provided for in the workers' compensation scheme. What about the proposals for a liability shield? And it'd be a very unusual law to also block state court lawsuits, state law lawsuits. But yes, it would only come to Congress. So it has to be an agreement between the uh, Democratic Party, which is very much influenced by the uh, plaintiff community, tort lawyer community, and the uh, Republican Party, which is very much influenced by businesses. So they're going to be a little bit loggerheads, and I, I would be surprised if we come to an agreement. Credit Suisse estimates that COVID-19 will result in $5 billion in workers' comp claims. Can the system handle all those claims? It might be overrun? Well, it might be. Uh, it's, it's going to be a, ser- a challenge to the system. There may need to be uh, some support from the government. We don't really know. There's a lot of um, conjecture going on. Will people file a claim just because they contract the virus and test positive? We don't know. You know, maybe they stay away for a week or two. The employer gives them paid leave for that period of time, and they decide to come back to work, and they don't file a claim. We really don't know how big this is going to be. But if they don't have the money, they will have to get uh, assistance from the government. And it will also factor in in the experience rating, the premium that employers have to pay. So what cases will get decided in courts? What cases will employees be able to bring lawsuits for? One category of cases will be cases where employees are not classified, where the providers of services are not classified as employees. If they're not classified as employees, then they're not covered by workers' comp. Uh, so here, in a way, employers will, will, will suffer a uh, penalty or a disadvantage because of their classification decisions. So the gig workers, you know, the people that deliver food to homes, uh, the Uber drivers, there's going to be an argument that they're not covered by workers' comp because the employers classified them as independent contractors. So that's one group of cases that will end up in court. The second group of cases that will end up in court, in all likelihood, are cases where the employee contracts the virus, but that leads to an exacerbation of serious underlying physical conditions. Those are cases that are likely to attract a competent plaintiff lawyer, and the plaintiff lawyer is going to want to go to court to get the advantage of a jury trial and the the higher valuation of risk to life and limb that they'll now get in court as opposed to workers' comp. I think those are the two categories of cases.
Is there a possibility that workers could sue under privacy laws? Yes, there are other kinds of lawsuits that are, that are possible. I mean, there could be discrimination. So, for example, if the employer treats older workers differently than younger workers in the assignment of jobs and stuff like that, that would be an age discrimination lawsuit. That would not be barred. If there are privacy claims, that would also not be barred. I would think that the privacy claims would be hard to bring if the government is saying, we insist that you test for the virus before you let the person return to work. It'd be just a harder case to bring, harder case to argue that was an unreasonable invasion of privacy. But in general, the exclusivity provision of the workers' comp law would apply only to tort actions for uh, physical or, or mental injury that occurs in the workplace. It would not bar other kinds of lawsuits, I would argue. The case law is pretty clear. So sexual harassment claims are usually not barred by workers' comp. Intentional wrongs are not barred by workers' comp. So if you can argue that what the employer did was intentionally dangerous, or the employer disregarded obvious risks. And it's maybe the argument that's being made in some of the meatpacking plant cases. Typically, workers' compensation does not bar lawsuits for gross negligence or recklessness or intentional wrong. So there are three categories of cases. One is where the workers are not classified as workers. The service providers are classified as independent contractors. They would have a strong argument that they're not bound by workers' comp. They're not covered by workers' comp. They may want to be covered by workers' comp. That would be a different issue. Number two, where the uh, exposure to the virus leads to an exacerbation of underlying conditions resulting in a very serious injury due to worker. That is a case that would be covered by workers' comp, but where the plaintiff lawyer may have a strong incentive to take that case out of workers' comp so they can have the advantage of a tort action in court in front of a jury. And the third category of cases, which I think would be relatively rare, where you could show that the employer acted in reckless disregard of dangers or intentionally acted uh, to expose the worker to uh, dangers. It would be harder to prove if, in fact, much harder to prove if the employer is complying with all of the guidance that are out there. I want to ask you about OSHA for a moment because OSHA has been criticized for not doing enough What's your take on OSHA's involvement? I don't know what they want OSHA to do, because if OSHA does too much, they're not going to have a tort action. <laughs> this is the, uh, the flip side of it. But I think uh, the, the, guidance, the guidance from OSHA could be a little more directive in saying, if you do X, Y, and Z, then we would regard what you're doing to be uh, reasonable in light of the, what we now know about COVID. No, it's a much more explicit statement. Uh, that you follow this, this format. But I don't think they could do more. OSHA has three things. They have three tools. One tool is they can inspect workplaces, and that can still go on. That if they get complaints from uh, workers that uh, they're being exposed to unreasonable conditions, those inspections can still go on. They would go on case by case. The second possibility is to pro- promulgate a rule. And this is something that the AFL-CIO sought recently. The AFL-CIO is the lead uh, labor union organization. They saw it recently, and they lost uh, in the courts. But they couldn't get such an emergency rule from the agency. If the agency promulgates such a rule, it's going to take time. It's not something that can happen overnight. It's very hard to do. Uh, it will take time. There are various procedures involved. And I'm not sure the rule will go much further than the guidance. I think they could be a little more, as I said, more directed in the guidance in saying to employers, do X, Y, and Z, and then it will be our position if you have not violated OSHA and if you've acted reasonably. That would give some comfort uh, to the employers. I don't favor liability shields 
because workplaces are different and uh, I think it could be abused. But I do favor clear guidance to employers so they're not trapped. They're ordering the person, the employee back to work and they're reasonably certain they won't be sued. I'm not sure. And the third thing the OSHA can do is also just bring administrative proceedings if they find an unreasonable set of working conditions. That can still go on. I think the criticism here is that they haven't promulgated a rule. And again, it's not that easy to promulgate a rule. It's going to have to be a public notice and comment period, a judicial review. As I say, I think the agency could do more and quicker with a better written guidance. Does it seem as if no matter what employers do, they're likely going to be facing these, at least the workers' comp claims for COVID-19 as the country goes back to work and, you know, we start to see more cases, perhaps a second wave? All the employers can do right now, it seems to me, is follow the guidances scrupulously. And that means sanitizing the workplace and it means social distancing, insisting on the wearing of masks periodic washing of hands as much as they can. Not all workplaces will actually permit social distancing, but to the extent it can be done, it should be done. And also employers should treat a little more generously workers' complaints they see because it's really to their advantage for the employee to proceed under workers' comp. That's Professor Samuel S. Stryker of NYU Law School. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, Michael Flynn takes his case to the D.C. Appellate Court. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Three D.C. appellate court judges will decide whether or not to issue an extraordinary order forcing the dismissal of the case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. At the oral arguments, the judges appeared wary of undertaking the drastic remedy of stepping into the case when Judge Emmett Sullivan hasn't yet issued a ruling on the government's motion to dismiss the charges against Flynn. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner of Carter and English. So, Bob, what was the main issue the judges were considering? The central issue that was before the D.C. Court of Appeals was the question of whether the trial judge, Judge Sullivan, was required to dismiss the case against Michael Flynn upon the government's motion or whether the trial judge had the authority to hold a hearing to look behind the motives behind the government's motion. Flynn's lawyers filed what's called a writ of mandamus, which was an attempt to circumvent the trial judge's authority and go directly to to the Court of Appeals to order him to dismiss the case immediately. How were the questions? Did the questions indicate anything from the appeals court judges? All three appeals court judges appeared to be in favor of allowing Judge Sullivan to proceed with the hearing. But this is purely a procedural issue at this point. They are not ruling on the merits of whether or not the judge could deny the government's motion to dismiss the case. And what they also left unanswered, and what is perhaps the most interesting question in this whole process, is if this hearing goes forward, if the judge denies the motion filed by Judge Flynn's lawyers and by the government and allows Judge Sullivan to proceed with his hearing, the question is, what is the scope of that review? Does Judge Sullivan have the authority to inquire if the government has political motives in seeking the dismissal of the case against Judge Flynn. Suppose the government does have political motives. The Justice Department has political motivations behind some of its prosecutions and some of its decisions not to prosecute. Well, that's a great question, and it really goes to the heart of this dispute, which is that this is such an extraordinarily unusual 
situation in a highly politically charged case. This is a case where you have Glenn having pled guilty twice to lying to the FBI about his conversations in 2016 with the Russian ambassador before the Attorney General William Barr has decided last month to try to drop the case. It's an unusual circumstance because the rule for dismissal of the case specifically says that the government may move to dismiss the case upon leave of court. And that suggests that the judge has some ability to look at the decision behind the dismissal and make some sort of inquiry. And that's what the Court of Appeals latched onto here, that the district court is not simply a rubber stamp. But what exactly are the parameters behind which and the rules that the judge at the trial level can look at and how much he can get into the motivations, that is the part that is unanswered. And there's really very little or non-existent case law on that question. As you mentioned, it seems as if they're going to allow Judge Sullivan to proceed. So then why even have this hearing? Writ of mandamus is, is extraordinary. So they could have just said, no, we're not going to hear this at this time. Why hold a hearing even? The writ of mandamus is an extraordinary sort of relief, and it requires that there be some kind of specific harm that's made out by the parties seeking that relief. In this case, the government argued that the harm was that if the hearing proceeds, it will allow the trial judge to get into the motives behind the decision to dismiss this case. And the deputy solicitor general argued that that would be harmful to the Department of Justice, particularly in this very politicized environment in which these allegations were made. That, however, was not enough to sway the Court of Appeals. They said that it is premature, or they certainly suggested that it was premature for the dismissal. And they certainly pointed out to the government that if Judge Sullivan were to decide against dismissing the case, that they could be right back before the Court of Appeals on the merits of this issue. So I think the Court of Appeals really looked at this as a procedural issue and simply said that the government had not made out the type of irreparable harm that was needed in order to grant this motion for mandamus. Is that in their favor to talk about the politicized environment, just what Judge Sullivan is concerned about? Well, I think what the department was arguing is that it was going to ultimately be damaging to the perception of the Department of Justice if a hearing were to go forward. And it would be a very unusual hearing where the department would have to provide information about its internal deliberations, including why no career prosecutor signed the motion to dismiss the charge against Mr. Flynn. And really, the government acknowledged that this would be a spectacle in a politicized atmosphere something that they argued was going to be damaging to the government. And also, I think implicit in that argument is that this dismissal was inevitable anyway, that it was unlikely, regardless of how Judge Sullivan ruled, that the Court of Appeals was going to force this case to go forward when both Flynn's lawyer and the government were both on the same side arguing that the case should be dismissed. Coming up next, will this be a round trip back to the appellate court? I've been talking to Robert Mintz of McCarter and English about a federal appeals court hearing in D.C. on the Justice Department's motion to dismiss all the charges against Michael Flynn, despite the fact that he's pleaded guilty. So the Justice Department was arguing that Judge Sullivan can't demand testimony on evidence from the government about why it decided to do this about face. But If a hearing goes forward, if this court allows a hearing to go forward, isn't that exactly what he's going to be asking for? 
Well, that's another interesting issue here, which is while the Court of Appeals has suggested that the hearing should be able to go forward, they really didn't get into the details of what that hearing would look like. And it does put the court in an interesting dilemma where the court cannot act as both the trial court and a prosecutor at the same time. So here we have this unusual circumstance where both the government and the defense, which is supposed to be adversarial, obviously, in this case, they're both on the same side. And instead, what Judge Sullivan did was to appoint a friend of the court, retired Judge John Gleason, to prepare a report and essentially argue the other side of this case, why this case should not be dismissed. Judge Gleason did prepare a long report and, and had actually filed it at the very same time that the writ of mandamus was sought from the Court of Appeals. And his report found that there was a gross abuse of prosecutorial power and accused the DOJ of acting in highly irregular conduct to benefit a political ally of the president. So what's happened here is if the Court of Appeals does rule as they seemed inclined to do to allow this hearing to go forward, we're going to see a very highly charged hearing before Judge Sullivan. But we'll have to see what Judge Sullivan allows in terms of testimony and how he decides to hear this case. At this point, he's got this long report that's been prepared by retired Judge Gleason. I suspect he's going to use that as the argument in favor of denying the motion to dismiss, and he's going to force the government and Judge Flynn's counsel to respond to those specific allegations. So an interesting question from one of the appellate court judges was whether the Justice Department would have authority to dismiss a case for racist reasons without the judge inquiring. What do you make of that question, which addresses a lot of the turmoil of the moment? Well, I think it hits the nail on the head in terms of the Court of Appeals acknowledging that the trial judge does have some role in reviewing and approving a motion to dismiss a case at this stage of the process. Remember, this is after Michael Flynn has already pled guilty twice to lying to the FBI, and it raises the secondary question if he was, is withdrawing his guilty plea and saying that he did not lie to the FBI when he talked about his conversation with the Russian ambassador, does that mean he lied to the court when he twice admitted his guilt? That's another issue that retired Judge John Gleason looked at. So there's a, a lot of issues here that are before the court, and it's going to be very interesting to see how Judge Sullivan deals with this hearing if, in fact, it goes forward. The Court of Appeals acknowledged that it's possible that Judge Sullivan will side with the government and with Judge Flynn's lawyers and dismiss the case, in which case there'd be nothing for the Court of Appeals to review. The, the Court of Appeals here is doing what courts of appeals typically do, which is to say that if they don't have to rule on a decision that they would prefer not to. So they're giving Judge Sullivan the opportunity to have this hearing if Judge Sullivan decides to deny the government's motion to dismiss this case then we can certainly see this right back before the Court of Appeals, and that's going to be another interesting argument. That was going to be my next question. If Judge Sullivan doesn't allow the government to dismiss the case, aren't we right back here at the Court of Appeals? If Judge Sullivan decides to deny the government's motion to dismiss this case, that is going right back to the Court of Appeals, and the central issue will be exactly what is the extent of Judge Sullivan's authority to review the motives behind the government in dismissing a case. One of the judges commented at the hearing that it, it would it be permissible for the government to dismiss a case if it was on racial motives. 
and it suggested that there are some lines that would be improper and again underscored the fact that the rule does explicitly say that the government may move to dismiss a case at this point in the process upon leave of court, which means that the court plays at least some role in reviewing the motives behind the dismissal. Exactly what that role is, is what's left unanswered and what we're going to find out if this hearing goes forward. Separation of powers seems to be coming up a great deal during the Trump administration, even at the Supreme Court. Explain that issue in this context, in the context of this case. In this case, the Solicitor General's office is arguing that the government has the sole authority to decide whether to prosecute cases and the judiciary does not have any role in deciding to review the motives of the government's reason for dismissing the case. It really creates an Article Three judicial power question and whether or not Judge Sullivan has exceeded his Article Three powers because it creates a situation in which the government is going to argue that when both the government and the defendant agree that the case ought to be dismissed, if Judge Sullivan, as he did in this case, appointed an advocate to argue the other side, it is the court rather than the parties that is creating an Article Three case or controversy. That's one of the issues that will certainly be before the Court of Appeals should this case go back for a hearing before Judge Sullivan and should Judge Sullivan decide to deny the government's motion to dismiss the case. So let's backtrack a little bit and explain why the Justice Department and specifically Attorney General William Barr says that this case should be dismissed against Flynn, what what their underlying contention is about the FBI investigation. Sure. The Department of Justice argued that the case ought to be dismissed based on Flynn's admitted lies about his discussions with the Russian ambassador regarding sanctions imposed on Russia by the Obama administration were not material to any viable investigation and that the FBI unfairly targeted him. The Department of Justice also argued that in reviewing Flynn's case, and this was something that was ordered by Attorney General Barr, they found reason to doubt the investigators' motives. There were some notes by one of the FBI agents that said something about trying to get Flynn to lie during the interview. So those are the reasons the Department of Justice are giving as to why this case ought to be dismissed. How unusual is it for the Justice Department, after they get two pleas of guilty, to start opening up the case again and reinvestigating it? Well, that's what's unusual about this case. I mean, it's virtually unprecedented for the government to dismiss a case after a defendant has pleaded guilty, absent some change in circumstance. And by that, I mean, it is usually that facts come out that may exonerate the individual who pleaded guilty. It's highly unusual here. We don't have that situation. We have an investigation that showed, according to the government, that the lies were made. So they acknowledge that General Flynn had lied. That's the heart of the case. But they're saying they should be dismissed nonetheless because they were not material to any viable investigation. And they're essentially arguing that there was some misconduct by the FBI here in targeting him for this investigation to begin with. The the Justice Department also relied on some notes that were unearthed recently during this investigation into the Flynn investigation that was ordered by Attorney General Barr, in which an FBI agent had included in his notes 
questions about whether or not they should try to get Flynn to lie during the interview. So they are attacking the motives of the FBI's investigation. But the heart of it is really not denying that Flynn lied. What they're denying is that there was a proper investigation to begin with. And it really goes to the bigger question that the Trump administration has been challenging here, which is the entire Russian investigation. And since Flynn pled guilty in connection with the Russian investigation and was initially supposed to cooperate with prosecutors and with the Mueller team during that investigation, undermining this guilty plea really is another step on the part of the Trump administration to try to unwind the damage that they believe was done by this unwarranted investigation into the connections between the Trump administration and Russian government during the election uh, of 2016. Finally, Judge Gleason's brief, which many people have used the term blistering for, he says in the brief that Michael Flynn committed perjury, yet he advises Judge Sullivan not to have a hearing on that, but just to use it when he sentences him to enhance his sentence. Is that odd to do that? Well, we have a situation in which Michael Flynn has not denied that he lied. That's not the heart of this case. And so when retired Judge Gleason did his investigation, which he then filed with the court and which will be considered at the hearing, if the hearing goes forward, he took into account the possibility that Michael Flynn could also be charged with perjury because he is now retracting his guilty plea. So he either told the truth when he pleads guilty, or he's telling the truth now by saying that he never did lie, in which case he lied before the court when he entered his guilty plea twice. So Judge Gleason is saying that that could be an independent charge for perjury, uh, but instead he's recommending that Judge Sullivan simply consider that issue in connection with the sentencing uh, to, to the offense that he's already admitted guilt. Judge Gleason said that that was more consistent with the intent to treat this defendant in the same way that it would treat any other defendant. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.